0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm delighted to welcome H. Ripley Rawlings IV back to the program today. Rip is a recently retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel who has entered into the world of writing military thrillers. He made his publishing debut last year with Red Metal, which he co-authored with best-selling author Mark Graney. Today, we'll be talking about Rip's retirement from the Corps and his first solo novel, Assault by Fire, which is published by Pinnacle Books. Rip, when we last talked, you were on tour with Mark for Red Metal and you're getting ready to retire from the Marine Corps. How's civilian life treating you?
1: It's pretty good. I've got a lot more time with family. There's no deployments and no one's blowing me up, so (laughs) in order.
0: And it's not too boring for you?
1: No, I've filled every minute. So I think one of the problems a lot of vets have is that once they retire, there's this tendency to try to fill, you know, all the time. And so I've just got back from hunting and we've partly moved up into West Virginia. And we're building a cabin up here and that'll be the final move, I think, uh, before too long. But uh, getting the kids in school, in-person school and all that has been a handful.
0: So how has the coronavirus affected you and your family?
1: You know, by nature, my wife, myself and the kids are all kind of outdoors people. And so we spend the majority of our time kind of hiking Hill and Dale. So I would say none, but, you know, anytime you want to go in and buy ammo or <laughs> anything, you've got to to go in. But out in West Virginia now, we've got drive-in movie theaters to go into that we've absolutely loved. You know, there's a few of our favorite barbecue joints that serve outdoors. And so I wouldn't say not at all, but very little.
0: Why did you choose wild, wonderful West Virginia?
1: obviously it takes place in my book. I've been up in the area since we were, I was stationed in the Pentagon many years ago, I guess 2000, what was it? 11, 12, and 13 before I took battalion command. And so, you know, if you're looking for a place to explore, you know, the mountains are kind of a natural adjunct. I mean, we're close enough near DC. And so it's a shame there's a lot of D.C.ites and Northern Virginiaites who don't really get up here, but the Shenandoah Valley, of course, the Blue Ridge, and then, you know, the Alleghenies are, are absolutely amazing. So you know if you like the outdoor life this is the place to go i should say i go east also one of my retirement's presents to me was a used boat and so we've been going out on the coast and doing some stuff on the water also
0: so how far are you going to be from the old Greenbrier resort
1: well we're pretty far but obviously it makes its way into the book so you know i've had to go down and take a look at it i really enjoy on location looking around and i mean as a reconnaissance guy a former reconnaissance guy i should say in the marine corps you know, after doing that for 23 years, you have a tendency to want to be on the ground and see things. And I'll be honest, I would say the greater percentage, 51% or bigger of plots or other things come to light when I see it on the ground. So if I can see it, you know, the ground kind of speaks to me to use Patton's old jargon.
0: So can you look at a map and kind of narrow down quickly what would be a good location for you to use, or do you really just have to be there in order to grok it?
1: As always, Stephen, <laughs> you're a very insightful guy. Yeah, the map tells me a lot. I mean, I think early on as a young lieutenant, you're taught by your senior officers and, of course, the very wise NCOs that are under your command who know you know, pretty much everything and, and try to teach their young lieutenants slowly. They break us in slowly. You learn to look at a map and read a map and, and be able to kind of commune with a map. And so, I mean, it's our bread and butter. You don't go anywhere. You haven't looked at a map first. And so I do the same thing when I'm writing as I look over... Tapos. I look at satellite imagery. I tend to do a very kind of thorough reconnaissance before I actually do the reconnaissance, the physical reconnaissance. So, you know, as always, <laughs> you're a darn good interviewer, if I can say so.
0: <laughs> so when did the recon for Assault by Fire begin?
1: It started years ago. I mean, I think If you really want to go back it started when i watched the movie red dawn and as a kid said whoa you know they could come here on our soil and i you really thought of nuclear war because we'd all watched you know the tv show uh, what was that one the day day after after. yeah and that movie left an imprint on me like no other i don't know why my parents let me watch it but you know we were doing duck and cover in school and of course you know my dad moved us very early so we were we lived in colorado for a part of our life and virginia and iowa so we've kind of moved around but colorado was right near norad and also we had the rocky flats nuclear plant where they created you know a majority of our our nuclear missiles and so or at least the warheads and so You know, we were there and it was a daily thing where there would be, I don't know, we're talking the seventies now. There were hippies that would lay down in front of the railroad tracks while they were trying to move plutonium or or other things. And of course we read about, I mean, as kids, parents would discuss it on the dinner table, expecting that their nine-year-old has no clue what's going on. But being a parent myself now, you realize your nine-year-olds are sponges. They know everything and they listen to everything.
0: I interviewed a professor who grew up outside of Rocky Flats as well. Oh yeah. And just the immense burden of cancer that has come from the uranium processing that went on there.
1: It did. And I think we've come to find out that the plant lied considerably about what was happening. It's tough to put our, I think, you know, 2020 vision back. So apropos kind of metaphor there, but it's it's, it's kind of tough to look, you know, at 2020 and say, what were they doing in the 1960s? Certainly there's an acceleration of our nuclear program. And I say all this having been the nuclear officer in the, in the Pentagon. So for the Marine Corps, which was a very odd job. We only have one and i was designated that guy and it was a very odd position to be in i mean they were in tssci on a daily basis and you know the things that you were doing you're briefing the commandant my position should the balloon go up was always kind of different than my comrades so you're leaving your fellow infantry brothers on the wayside is you know one of my positions was in what's called a nalo which is where you would go down and muster to go fly over to andrews air force base with the commandant and then go up basically in the advanced and early warning aircraft the air force runs And if the commandant was in that position, I should say, so kind of caveating that is, you know, every quarter a service chief stands in as the alternate for the secretary of defense. And if the sec def can't be found or is otherwise incapacitated, the senior guy in the service takes over and now is the one who has the duty to call the president and give him, you know, nuclear issues. For me, that was very eye opening. I mean, I had no basis in the Marine Corps for learning that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, my duty was to ensure that the commandant of the Marine Corps understood his duties in briefing the president to perform nuclear counterstrike or whatever nuclear issue that we needed to do. I'm trying to dance around (laughs) subjects here, but um, I don't know. There are some things that are unclassified about it. and. To me, it's it's kind of a pleasure to talk about. It. And of course, I stick some of that in the book.
0: So, do you have to run the book by any type of official clearance, given that you held top secret clearance yourself, I guess, or at least some security clearance in the past?
1: So the answer is no. There's this oddity. I've contacted public affairs officers over and over again, you know, almost annoying them with what do I need to put past you? And the universal response is honestly, it was a little harder when I was active duty. Now it's a little bit easier, but even during active duty, they said very clearly. You know, Colonel Rawlings, what are you writing? Well, it's fiction, okay? Are you putting anything in it that details anything that has to do with you know things that you've signed waivers on? No. Well, then good. You can go ahead. And say, it's a it's a work of fiction. We don't need to see it. There are authors who really take great joy in kind of sending these things through to the agencies that need to review it from NSC to CIA or others, you know, depending on where they've worked. And it's a little superfluous. I mean, I think they get a tremendous amount of public relations from it because you can redact parts of your book, but, you know, or have them do it and then kind of say, oh, look, see, this book is too hot for everything else. But in all actuality, it's generally not required if you're writing a work of fiction. They tell you very clearly, you have signed up to all of these caveats. And if you violate them, you're going to jail we'll pull every book off the shelf and we'll sue you. And you will likely, you know, I mean, we're not talking about debtor's prison. This is, you know, ADX Supermax in Florence, Colorado. So they tell you, um, you're going away for a long time. You'll be treated as a terrorist. So, you know, it's under threat of penalty of death, not literally, but, you know, practically, where they tell you, do not do it. From then on, you got out of the Marine Corps after 23 years, they expect you to regulate yourself. And if you're not able to do it, they'll do it for you. But, you know, those cases that have happened have been so far and few between. There have been public officials who have not been in the military who've generally leaked them because usually, I think we, having lived with it for so long, you have a tendency to believe if you do it, that you'll get abused. And I think some of our civilian counterparts, maybe in the agency or other places, sometimes it happens. And, you know, we know those people. They're in the IDX Florence Supermax right now.
0: And John Bolton's looking down the barrel of that right now as well, it seems like.
1: Well, you know, I stray away from current politics because there's so much that can be swayed in public opinion. And so, You know, in in my impression, I think when you look at your classifications, it's very obvious. I mean, I think if I served four years and you do of course look at the young men and women who've served, you know, very short periods of time and are given heavy clearances, maybe they're intelligence officers or analysts and all of a sudden they're out and I don't know if it's a temptation. I don't I don't I'm, I never really know what crosses their mind. I'm a fairly patriotic guy, so I don't understand people who tend to give up secrets. But, you know, I, I think you can see that they weren't imbued in it every day. So I think if you've been you know steeped in it your entire life, it's like being in the warm bath is that you're in those waters for so long that they're comfortable. And if you step out, you'll know it <laughs> I mean, you freeze your butt off. But, you know, a lot of folks, retiree friends of mine who were in the service and now are looking at other government jobs you know, all of us think, you know, maybe I'll be called up back to service and have to go kick some butt down rain someday. That will never happen. But, you know, at the very least, maybe I'll go into a government job and you have to maintain, obviously, your your clearance for that. But also, we're very patriotic people and and being
0: in the warm bath is a comfortable place to be. (laughs) So what does it feel like being unplugged now that you're a civilian?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, being unplugged, it has two aspects to it. One, you know, really is that being plugged, if you will, you're it's there's an intoxicating effect of always being in a data stream because you're receiving, you know, up to the minute issues that are facing our national security that generally you have an interest in, you know, your whatever job you're in at that moment. The other side of it is I think it's actually a joy to be unplugged because, you know, your buddy might be waking up down the block because a dog is barking at 2 a.m. But when you're plugged in at 2 a.m., you wake up and even things that are not in your purview kind of tend to cross your mind. And so you think, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> you know what's gonna happen over there in Yugoslavia or what, <laughs> what have you back in the day, obviously. You know, so you have a tendency to see things or look at things and, and worry about things that probably, you, that now I don't, I should say. Now I worry about, you know, how my kid's grades are and that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> Do you have an official reserve status right now?
1: No, I'm IRR, so when you retire, and collect a pension, then they kind of very ignominiously shove you into the IRR status because at that point you're, you're collecting an income from them and they just, there's no reason for them to want to call you back.
0: Less seriously, what's the hair situation still rocking a high and tight or?
1: (laughs) Yes, I am. I think Marines are the last to go when it comes to letting it get long and shaggy, but you know, I think, give me a year and I'll have a ponytail and and a giant beard. But, you know, m- Marines generally keep it high and tight, or at least go back to that, in my experience.
0: Your fellow Lieutenant Colonel, former Lieutenant Colonel, um Benjamin Bush, he went super shaggy after he got out of the Corps.
1: You know, some do. And it, for some instances, it's an imaging thing. I think, you know, if you're a TV personality, if you're in movies, if you're maybe writing books, you know, you want to look the part in some cases. So if some of my friends who have gone log and shaggy have done it because of whatever they've gone into i mean some of them have become contractors back in the government again and they're now still deploying and so for them you know they, they kind of pick up that marine special forces role again and, and kind of look that part the beard and the long hair i mean if you have red hair and you're downrange and you have a red beard everybody knows that you're not from the middle east
0: <laughs> i guess you know, dark facial hair would be somewhat of an advantage since so many men have beards in the Middle East. But if yeah. you were to be injured in the face, that would be so bad when it comes to surgery. Yeah. Speaking
1: from experience, not my own, but obviously being around all of those matters when they happen, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, any of that is very difficult. Being carrying heavy flax uh, and body armor uh, is difficult for doctors. My wife's a doctor, so I married into naval medicine. She, you know, very unfortunately, in some instances, performed surgery on on some of my Marines while we were in Iraq. So, which is a tough thing, you know, obviously skilled at what she does and knows her duty and takes care of it. But, you know, when you've got a 20 year old sergeant up on your operating table, who is a friend of the family, whose wife and kids have been over to our house for barbecues before deployment, it's a little, a little bit of different than, you know, you've got someone else up there. So she does obviously the same job no matter what, but those are difficult issues, I think.
0: Turning back toward the book is assault by fire, a term of art in the military.
1: It is. So, it's a term of art that comes from our joint publication for Warfare for Operations. So, JP3 Tech Zero, when you get into amphibious operations, you know, each of the different services redefine some of those joint terms to more local terms, and then how you employ that is going to be different. So, an assault by fire that's conducted by the Navy is drastically different from the Marine Corps. The Air Force, by the way, even though it's a joint definition, doesn't really assault by fire. They do perform or supports to assault, but theirs are more supports by fire. So it is a term of art that means that you are attacking an objective from two locations simultaneously, or it could be three or four, it's really up to the commander. And the intent is that you are suppressing the objective with so much, such a raking volume of fire that they don't have the ability to coordinate any of their own activities. And then you can race on the objective while they're under that sustained basis of fire.
0: The book opens up 12 years ago in Fallujah, Iraq. And Lieutenant Tice Asher has a raid on a house goes sideways with very long-lasting repercussions.
1: He does so. The book starts with Tice in a very intense firefight, and he's a fairly junior officer, so he's a you know junior Marine lieutenant, and he is blown out of his Humvee. Entire Humvee erupts, which unfortunately, you know, I've seen all too many times. Now he survives, lands on his head. His helmet splits in half. His staff sergeant drags him kind of by the scruff of the neck into a building where he's given aid. I'll give your <laughs> your readers some insight. Very few people notice all of my Easter eggs. I like to put a lot of different things in the book. And a lot of them, for me, are things that I'm going to come back to. So there, there are these trails where you're like, wow, that's an interesting point. Um, and then you maybe hopefully notice it a little bit later on. And then, you know, obviously that's perfect fodder for something in another book. But Sergeant Dixon, so I misspoke, he is a sergeant. Sergeant Dixon pulls his lieutenant into the building. And then later on, Gunnery Sergeant Dixon is working with then Major Tice Asher up in the hills of West Virginia as we get a little further into the book. But yeah, so that starts Tice's adventure. He then sends the men to go in and and take down a building where the majority of the fire is being coordinated from. As they kind of crash into the building through the window, He orders men here, there, and everywhere, and decides to go up and support some of his men that sound like they're in a pretty big firefight upstairs. And when he gets up there, he sees, unfortunately, the men have all been wiped out, all of them. And it's a gut-wrenching feeling for him, for anyone, to see, you know, your Marines get hurt. But he then sees that some of the terrorists are still alive. And he has to choose what he's going to do. He picks one of them, the guy who's got an AK and is blazing at him and throwing a grenade. And it's a good decision. But then there's a terrorist who's somewhat wounded on the ground who then slashes Tice with a blade across his leg. Tice falls down, the heavy body armor pulls him down, and he's fighting with this insurgent on the ground when he realizes the grenade is about to go off. And he pulls the terrorist on top of him or next to him and lets him absorb the blast, but unfortunately loses his leg.
0: Ten years later, we see Tice fighting for his career in the the Marine Corps because they want to wash him out.
1: A terrifying experience, I think, for any Marine. And I'm not speaking from personal experience on this, but I have had so many friends who've gone through this, it's traumatic, is to have to defend your career. And whether it's defending decisions that you've made, which I have had to do, or it's defending yourself. So, you know, Tice has to do the latter, which is to defend his person. And as a wounded Marine... You know, here he is, he's been promoted to captain. And so he's one step advanced from where we see him in the beginning of the book. But now, minus the lake, he's gone through all the rehabilitation, which we don't really get into. It's very extensive. And I didn't want to drag the reader kind of through what it goes, what it takes to rebuild, you know, our wounded Marines and soldiers and sailors. They all go through a tremendous amount of their own trials. But those will come up again later as well in future books. But he finds that the Corps, I don't want to say doesn't want him. But the Marine Corps really wants to know why he doesn't want to just retire to a comfortable life and kind of accept, you know, the money that he'll receive for being disabled. He says, no, I want to stay in the service. And so they say, well, really, the only thing we have left for you is to train reservists. But we do need you to do that. We need combat capable veterans. And so he's sent off to train, you know, all ilk of reservists and, and doesn't really look forward to it. So he he leaves the meeting with the colonel kind of dismissing him a little bit more roughly because Tice continues to push back on the medical diagnosis. The worst is, and I've seen this happen in medical boards as well, because I've seen these before and been on them before, is that, you know, the medical officers then start picking at, at them and say, well, wait a minute, you, you were blown out of a vehicle you know, do you have traumatic brain injury? Do you have these other injuries? And he says, no, no, I don't. And so he realizes, you know, he's fighting a losing battle. And so hopefully every Marine knows when he has to retreat. And in this instance, Tice has to retreat.
0: Now, in both of your novels so far, in Red Metal and now Assault by Fire, you've got officers with a bad set of wheels.
1: I have a bum knee, a bad neck, and I've had to have back surgery. In fact, it was kind of my kiss goodbye from the Marine Corps they said, your back is so bad. If you don't operate on it now, you're going to have to do it, you know, eventually. And I had been dealing with the, I would say crippling issues of it, but it's not, it wasn't crippling. You know, there's many Marines who've dealt with crippling issues. Mine were debilitating. It affects everything, your lifestyle. You can't sit at a desk. I was having very big difficulties running and finally just decided to bite the bullet and listen to the doctors. My my wife being one of them (laughs) said, okay, forget it. And that frankly was kind of, you know, one of the things. It didn't propel me out of the Marine Corps because I was not forced onto a a medical board, but it was one of the things that was a deciding vote. It was my back is not able to keep up with the things that I needed to do. And it had been that way for years. It had been that way since Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: Do you work at a standing desk now?
1: You know, I don't. I found it more comfortable to slouch. When they finished the surgery, I had a laminectomy and a discectomy. I had three discs that were just completely washed out, and my neck has one disc that's washed out, but I'm very reluctant to look at do the surgery out for my neck also I've several pilot buddies who have done that and you know it's left them in in some cases in even worse shape the back I don't need to do that I slouch it just it looks terrible people look at my posture when I'm sitting and they're like what's wrong with you well I'm a 6 foot 4 guy whose back is completely done so I slouch uh, I go the other way you know the doctor said early on if you were to do a standing desk or one of those kneeling chairs it helps but I find that it puts pain on the wrong spots and I get a lot of sciatica. So if you see me at a desk, you'll wonder why I'm so lackadaisical. It's mainly just because I got to get the weight off of my back.
0: Well, I slouch at the desk too, but that's just because okay. I'm kind of a slob. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's two of us. <laughs> and also 12 years ago in the book, we meet a Russian officer named Kolokov and yeah. he's got a new toy to play with. He
1: has a new toy and he doesn't want it. So that's the fun part is that... There is a computer that his organization has put together based on some, you know, kind of captured German science from World War II. And that's another Easter egg is that I'm going to come back to that again, because that's the computer itself, I think, is a fascinating little piece of the book. I didn't want it to overcome the people. So but it is kind of dutifully chugging along in the background, compiling data, and it, it does very well as its new master is able to kind of get it to do the things that it needs to, you know, at the point of a gun, I might add. But General Kolokov, well, Colonel, when we meet him, is a very newly promoted, fast-rising officer who has very little field time, you know, and I've seen a million folks like this. He's got a lot of staff time and is very good at it and realizes that he's kind of been given the worst assignment he could ever imagine. He's now in charge of this dumb computer. They're about to showcase it for their big Bay Day parade, which in Russia is the victory over Germany from World War II. It's a big, big deal, still is to this day. I mean, you will see you know, Putin in front of the men every time they do a victory parade because they feel as though they saved all of Europe. Russia still to this day believes that if not for the Soviet Union, Europe would have collapsed under the weight of Germany. So Kolokov is now realizing he's got this dumb computer. And when they show it in the Mayday, everyone says it's terrible. And he gets sent off to basically Siberia. And a new boss picks him up and says, OK, you know, they didn't want you over there in Moscow, but Siberia ain't Moscow. So you work for me. And that little computer thing that you didn't like is now mine also. Let's see what it can do.
0: And so they set up planning war games and simulations when Tice is in front of the review board, Kolokov has a new set of instructions given to him regarding the computer just two years ago in the book.
1: I hope, you know, as readers see it, there's, you know, introducing obviously the protagonist and antagonist. You see a young, youngish, but broken Marine who is trying to cobble together a career and really doesn't know what his future holds for him. And you see and at the top of his game, Russian infantryman who then is dashed in his own way, has his own loss in in his career and kind of tossed down to the bottom. But both of them realize that they have to renew themselves in their new lives. One of them, I would say, for purposes of ill. And the other one realizes that he's thrust in the limelight whether he wants to or not, and has to do some good and has to respond to what the men need immediately. So both of their circumstances are drastically different, and both of their downfalls, if you will, are very different. But I think, you know, at least the test readers have had so far, they really enjoy the fact that they're drastically different characters who are thrust into positions and then have to make good for them, you know, make the positions work for ill-gotten gains or for good uh, gains. And so, you know, that hopefully it's kind of a a 180. It's not intended to be a full yin and yang, but in some ways it is.
0: Well, they're both thrust into academic roles in which Asher has to instruct and train reservists and National Guardsmen and such, and where Horkolikov is stuck behind a computer doing these theoretical simulations that become yeah. all too real too soon.
1: They do. And I don't want to leak out too much for what will be in subsequent books, but I had seven chapters of additional kind of introduction to the computer and to Tice. And I took them out because I wanted to get more to the action. I figure that if you, you know, the long lead-ups are really good for books like Red Metal, but for books like Assault by Fire, the intent really is that the reader enjoy themselves. I don't want them to read manuals or get so deeply into kind of the strategy that they've, 90% of the readers who just pick it up off the shelf at the Walmart are like, I don't want to read this thing. So, I mean, the the first purpose of any novel is to entertain. And so I took them out after I read and reread them probably, I don't know, 60 or 70 times. And I tried to get them to fit. I even chunked them down to about three pages a piece. And I thought it was just too much, but some of that will come back again. So you're going to find out some more about how this computer works. You're going to find out more about, you know, what was Tice doing in the interim? And I hope it'll prove to be exciting background for those that that stick with the series.
0: How many books do you think this arc will take up in the series?
1: (laughs) That's up to my editor and that's up to Kensington. You know, I'll be honest, I'm doing another book pitch in December. I won't tease that out because, you know, you know how book pitches are. You never know if the, anyone's going to be interested. But I have a whole nother series that I'm pitching in December. And I would like to keep this series going as long as, you know, people are interested and in, as long as Kensington says that they're, they are they want to pay for it. So, But I, I love the series. I like the characters. There's a mix mash of a lot of different folks. And it's very fun for me to take a lots of different backgrounds You know, not just military, because, of course, we've got a lot of civilians in the book and say, you know, what would happen? Is it a red dawn, you know, 40 years later? Maybe it really is in some ways an updated version of of a what if.
0: Well, I'll have to give you uh, props for your restraint. I didn't see Wolverine pop up anywhere in there. (laughs)
1: Well, keep looking for other signs because (laughs) the Red Dawn, you know, there's some homages in there that, you know, are not really readily apparent, but most of them are very, very handily buried. I don't want them to distract people. But, you know, Red Dawn centers directly on civilians and there's one military guy. So I do a little bit of the inverse of that, where you have lots of military guys and less civilians. And partly the reason is that there are especially, you know, with our civilian population flush with a lot of veterans, you do have a fair amount of folks kind of in the hinterlands who have served in one capacity or another. And, you know, my own experience is watching the greatest generation, our grandparents, as they kind of, you know, navigated society, they were the backbone of a lot of things. They were the senior members of the post office. They ran companies. My grandfather, after being in the Army Air Corps, was the vice president of a hardware distribution company in Norfolk, Virginia. So, you know, you tend to see veterans everywhere when you become one. And I think that's a little bit what I tried to capture in the book is that there are folks out there that may or may not be veterans, but they're certainly willing to step up to the plate when something goes bad. And I think if we were invaded, you would see a lot of this. You would see a tremendous amount of people who say that I value my liberty too much to, to roll over.
0: Before we get more in depth into some of the other characters in the book, the world that these characters live in is not quite ours. The USA is currently in the book involved in a quagmire in Iran. Right. You know,
1: when I started the book, we were still involved in Iraq. And Afghanistan was not in ascension, but we were essentially still doing a fair amount. And all of that in recent years have gone away. So I had to pick a new backdrop to it. But the basics of it still stand. You know, in the prologue, I kind of outline the Soviet war plans that looked at several aspects of the United States. And generally during the Cold War, the Soviet Union looked at the United States and said, well, we'll never have to bother with them unless it's pressing a button. So if we were to want to invade Europe, you know, kind of here are the ways that we would do it. And, you know, in intelligence circles and in operation circles, we generally know what the Soviets wanted to do. They did have a lot of preemptive plans, including the invasion of Europe. Their invasions of the United States were much more, you know, stilted. They didn't believe it was very possible. And they didn't believe it was possible for many reasons. I picked three because to me, those were the biggest and the most telling. One was strategic nuclear arms. The second one is the Second Amendment, believe it or not, that does figure into their planning. They see it almost the same way that we saw their third army, which is they have the reserves that are, you know, generally old men or young, young men, and they could be armed at a moment's notice, but they were the third layer of their defense. Let me hit strategic nuclear arms for a minute. The the strategic aspect to me is always fascinating because we focus on that. They have, even to this day, they've not gotten rid of their tactical nuclear weapons. And they saw that as the key. So they see strategic nuclear arms as doing one thing that's holding America at bay. And because Europe has mainly relinquished all of its nuclear weapons, you know, barring a few, they see that their tactical nuclear weapons are much more what they need to dominate the hegemonies of Europe. So they are the hegemony in that sense that they look at it and say, we are the regional power because as a land army, all we need to do is fire local tactical nuclear weapons at people. And now we've defeated larger masses or formations of troops. So in the book, I posit, you know, well, that's really an ocean's distance when it comes to strategic plans. But if you were to shorten that distance, you could bring tactical nuclear missiles into the US sphere very easily. We tend to not really realize how easily. It's looked at as though, well, you know, tactical nukes only have a certain radius. You know, of course, we have open shipping lanes that you can bring anything in and it's not screened until it gets to our port facilities or at least, you know, kind of directly outside of those. So in this case, Russia brings the tactical nuclear weapons within our range fan and attacks those things on the coast that would prevent the U.S. from responding and obliterates, you know, the, the targets that they need to take out. And, and I don't go into great depth on that because I went through the process of kind of strategically outlining what they would hit, what things are in the interior and therefore less vulnerable, you know, of course, by firing tactical nuclear weapons, they're below the trajectories intercontinental ballistic missiles. And those are the ones that we're really looking for. So the flight trajectory of, you know, the Scarab, the missile I use in the book, is so low that it's even below the trajectory of most aircraft, so it's virtually invisible to radar. You're not going to see it, and if you fire an array of them, we're talking about you know hundreds. The yields of the warheads are massive, and you could take out very strategic targets quickly. I didn't go into all of those. I found myself kind of going through it at first, and as I got maybe I don't know one tenth of the way through planning what the strike would look like, I decided you know no matter what I put down, someone will debate the veracity of that strategic targeting on the tactical level. And so I said, now it's better to even leave some of that up to the reader's imagination and say, well, what would we hit? And so I outlined a couple of them, but the majority of them are kind of left up to the reader to figure out and think about.
0: Yeah, because you keep the action once it starts rolling very local in West Virginia, the fog of war, they have no idea what's going on around the country.
1: That was very purposeful. So my thought was it's way more exciting to see what people are doing on the local level, I'm, I would much rather kind of read what the dude's perspective is versus, you know, what's happening in the Pentagon on a daily basis. So the Pentagon gets taken out very early on and the White House gets taken out very early on. And then from then on, you're, you're now down with Tice and you're down kind of at his, logo. I mean, you bounce back and forth between protagonist and antagonist, but generally speaking at this point, you know, you're gonna see things from his level and he's generally doesn't know what's happening. And in any war, I mean, bar none so far, unless someone tells me I'm way off base, Your kind of local element commanders, we're talking, you know, maybe even division and below World War II, you know, possibly even higher, like core and below, they don't really know what's happening in the strategic picture. You really have no idea. You know that you have 3,000 things happening at once. You know the enemy that's generally in front of you and maybe one or two deep from him. And then what's happening two or three units away, or even, you know, one country away, if you're talking about the conflict in uh, Europe during World War II, you have no clue. So that's what we do. We're now below the battalion level. I mean, he's at a regiment, but, you know, Tice is only a major. And he has no idea what's happening strategically. He has really no idea why this is started. And so we, as the reader, really have to kind of get into the tidbits that he's grasping at. And I think that's more exciting. You know, if you have the omniscient full picture of what's happening, you know, that's exciting in one way. But on the other hand, if you have just Tice's perspective, every tidbit that comes from on high is exciting. I learned that through many, many novels that I've read where you don't know what's happening and, you know, as a guy who likes to know the strategy, when you get a little drip, you go, oh, holy cow, I you know, that's, so this is what that means. So I kind of wanted to set it up that way. I wanted it to be exciting in that uh, perspective.
0: And you have another couple of other complicating factors in that. Most of the military is engaged in Iran. So the navies in the Persian Gulf and the uh, Marines and the Army are, are in country there. But also there has been a successful assault weapons ban in America, making right. uh, ammunition and long guns very difficult to get.
1: That's right. And in fact, if you're kind of, you know, keeping in that theme, if you watch the first tactical nuclear strike that occurs, of course, you know, a, a kind of a side character. Well, he's fairly prominent, but there is a retired general who observes one of the tactical nuclear Attacks and it's on an armory. So it's not given great detail. I had chapters and chapters of how the Second Amendment ban went into effect, but I didn't. It, it just was gobbledygook. And frankly, a lot of it sounded kind of like right wing propaganda. It wasn't intentional, but it, when you get into the Second Amendment, it's difficult to avoid some of the political pitfalls in that. So I glazed over the majority. I took it all out and said, you know, let's focus more on what's happening. But the general does observe a strike and it's on an armory where they've been holding second amendment weapons and i did get into some detail on what it would look like i used the prohibition and other things like it as a backdrop if we were to confiscate weapons if we were to order their removal from civilian hands what would that look like and we would immediately you know kind of activate the reserves and have them use these centers of the, the old armories where we have tremendous amount of other weapons stored for you know, backup and and larger war. And we would store them in those locations. So those become some of the tactical targets for the Russians, which is let's get rid of these weapons because at this point, we're hugging the United States almost the way in a close battle, you know, the Viet Cong or even the Germans, the Japanese, they got to be very worried about our artillery and would stay closer to our formations to prevent our ability to use mass artillery. So the Soviets have done that kind of on the grand scale and said, we're now right next to you you could fire off strategic nuclear weapons, which, you know, if there are any left at this point, but it's not going to do any good because we're already here. So in that sense, you know, they need to then strip away the next layer of armament. And that is those weapons that are in the hands of the Civil and National Guard civilians at this point have turned in theirs. And so these National Guard armories become localized targets, you know, both for paratroopers, as we find out in part of the book, as well as you know, just eliminate them with tactical nuclear weapons. And, you know, the Scarab, the the weapon system that I use in the book, the Scarab 2 as a delivery vehicle can deliver a warhead sufficient enough to neutralize, you know, any of these things and completely take them out. In fact, there is some concern, I think, on some levels that if they were to hit strategic targets, i.e., you know, ICBMs or the bunkers where we store our cruise nuclear missiles, those can become targets as well. Meaning, a tactical strike is still very deadly.
0: They turn the weapon into a weapon on its owner. That's right. So you would get much more damage. A small nuclear strike onto a larger nuclear weapon would then increase the yield immensely. The yield,
1: and you know, obviously, we have all of those weapons either on larger bases or, in some cases, remote locations for the ICBMs. And so, the Minuteman III, you know, even where we store the Polaris missiles, those are all in warehouses on the coast, generally. And so those places are military, legitimate military targets. I mean, these are all unclassified. But if you hit, you know, down in near Norfolk, we've got several facilities that we use to store nuclear material. And if you hit those near Yorktown or others, those store a lot of other things. And they're right next to naval bases. So you're taking out a lot of things at once. As you just said, you're the fuse but you're lighting off a powder keg that destroys much larger swath of the enemy's capability. And you, all you had to do was lob a small tactical nuclear weapon at it. So yeah, that that is the premise is hit it with something small and, and make it go big. The yields are, are tremendous. But again, I didn't want to get so deep in that. I had all these chapters in there. I've, I've saved them because I'm going to eke out a little bit in future books just to kind of give you know those readers like yourself who do enjoy a little bit more about what happened at the strategic level, those drips I mentioned earlier. I think that can be exciting, although... I don't want them to dominate. It's so easy to turn this into kind of a much larger book, and that's not its intent. Even if you remember some of Tom Clancy's classics, if you look at Red Storm Rising, he gets onto some of that, probably more than I do in my book. If you look at The Hunt for October, he he gets into very little. So those aspects, The Hunt for October for me was an eminently more exciting book because what's happening at the strategic level is talked about. You get into the houses of power briefly, but then immediately you're back in the sub. And that's where you want to be as a reader, I think, because you want to be on the tactical level. There are people who enjoy strategic books where you're writing purely about strategy. But I would say those armchair generals typically enjoy a genre of book that I don't write.
0: Strategy is mostly about organizations and government level stuff. Tactical stuff is about the people in the field getting things done. And so let's meet some more of these characters in the book. First, that seems like since you talked about her a little bit earlier, seems would be very familiar to you is a naval surgeon and commander named Victoria Remington. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's right. I went round around on her name. That one, to me, in my test audience, everyone liked that name. In their minds, the name sounded the way that she appears in the book. So I had another few that I liked better. Now, I've been asked over and over again, as is, a is reflection of my wife, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, she a uh, naval medicine. This is not my wife. <laughs> Although when my wife reads it, she hits me on the shoulder sometimes and says, I don't say that. Um, <laughs> but... This is a character, and she is a Navy surgeon who's at, and I still use the term Bethesda. The technical term right now is now that we've combined the Army facility with the Navy facility, it's not called Bethesda anymore purely, but we old Marines still think of it as Bethesda. And if you go to any Marines or sailors in the district, you know, from Quantico all the way North, we all call it Bethesda still. So she's there, she's kind of jogging with her buddies and all of our characters that reemerge in the book or that become prominent, witness at least some parts of the invasion. And that, I think seeing it through their eyes is so much more exciting. So she's down by the Potomac, an area where I've gallivanted around many times when I was stationed in the Pentagon. And she's kind of out jogging with some buddies and they see these landing crafts that are disguised as booze cruise boats. And one of them basically lands directly in front of them. And its targets, you don't really know right away, but its target is, is the White House and the Capitol. You know, you see the other ones pulling off into Reagan National Airport, another one that pulls into the Pentagon boat basin, which exists. You know, all these places have been around a million times. And they see some explosions, they hear some gunfire, and they realize, holy crap, this is going down. And she's been around long enough that she knows something's happening so she tells all of the other doctors who are with her we need to go back to Bethesda something really big is happening.
0: Up next we have Asher Superior in the training operation they're out on Colonel Nepo and he doesn't exactly cover himself in glory and honor when uh, the invasion starts up. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, I've I've fallen into an old cliche which is it's really exciting to have the protagonist's boss be kind of adult. So I hope my readers will excuse the fact that there's not a tremendous amount of depth to his superior. And it's not intended to obviously bring any discredit on the West Virginia National Guard, although I did have a tremendous amount of trouble trying to get interviews with them. I had the public relations guys, you know, kind of held me at bay for months and months and months. I was able to talk to a few of their more tactical officers. And of course that comes out in the book a little bit better, but I wanted to talk to their more senior guys and just ask them their perspectives on defense management and dealing with you know crisis management in general, you know, what would they do, the kind of what ifs and none of them were available. But uh, yeah, he doesn't just discredit himself. He has no idea. Idea what to do. Now, I would say every officer that I know in the military has been faced with a boss like that. So I think whether you're a army corporal or a petty officer second class in the navy or you're a, you know, Marine Corps major or an Air Force Staff Sergeant. You have seen this guy before who, when faced with this crisis, kind of scratches his head and says, what do we do? Maybe very good in a boardroom, but not so great in the war room or, or out on the streets, as is the case here. And so, yeah, it, this is now where Tice really realizes that he's not gonna get any answers from his boss. It has very little to do with the fact that he's a reservist, the boss. It has to do with that he's just never experienced combat. And so you do have this little bit of a discussion between him and another character who says, what's wrong with him? And he says, well, you were in Fallujah. You remember how it was. This isn't easy. And he's just absorbing kind of the initial impact. So give him some time. So he he gives him the benefit of the doubt. Now, Colonel Nepo, I'm not sure if Colonel Nepo deserves the benefit of the doubt, but he at least says, let's help him. And so Tice steps up to the plate and starts to deal with the, the crisis.
0: With a name like Nepo, it sounds like the prefix for nepotism. I don't know if there was any.
1: There are a lot of tidbits in this book. There's a lot of Easter eggs. So I'm not going to, I won't uh, reveal anything right now, but yeah.
0: Someone who is considerably more qualified in the Corps is Staff Sergeant Diaz, one yeah. tough customer.
1: She is tough. And we now have uh, female infantry women and they are as tough as nails. And so I wanted to put one in the book that uh, people would relate to. So, you know, you run into her. And not only is she kind of locked and ready, but although surprised by some of the attacks, she's immediately ready to jump to action. And so Tice relies on her as he does his gunnery sergeant, Gunnery Dixon. And she is tough. She's big. She demands respect. And she brings a dog with her. So she is kind of the favorite of one of the unit's furry companions, which is a dog named Trigger. And those two are not always seen together because Trigger kind of goes around and does his own thing. But he tends to gravitate towards her and then occasionally comes over to Tice because Tice always has candy.
0: But Trigger is a horse's name.
1: Trigger is a horse's name if you go back into into movies and things like that. But in this case, you know, I was looking at names that are tough that we haven't used in the military in the past. So gun parts are always exciting. So bullet would have been another for the name of our loyal Belgian Malinois. But in this case, I thought Trigger was just too cool because it does harken back to the cowboy days, as you mentioned before. And so anyone who remembers that show and remembers fondly that loyal horse, hopefully will associate some of that with a loyal dog as well.
0: Now, Trigger makes the cover of the book and there's also kind of a, a silhouette of a, a man standing there and it kind of reminds right. me of the, the real book spy yeah. artwork.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I love the real books by it. It's intended to be kind of one of a number of different characters. Obviously, it's a male figure, but is it Tice? It could be. Is it uh, one of the other characters? Possibly. But uh, the intent is is that I don't want to say a boy and his dog, maybe a man and his dog in this case. Very well, just as easily could have been a lady and her dog uh, if it were staff sergeant that was on the cover. But yeah, the intent is that you get a chance to know that this is all in. So <laughs> When we're invaded, I suspect we'll have every layer of man woman and child involved in our counter conflict and i suspect a lot of animals will go with us so you know whether it's horses dogs it doesn't really matter i think everything as we've proven in war the marine corps has used dogs and horses and mules and all of those animals become exceedingly good combat support weapons
0: and speaking of a boy and his dog you name check that movie during the course of that and i'll say that one gave me many more nightmares than the day after
1: a Boy and His Dog, yeah, which that's post-apocalyptic. I mean, you know, if you see the the day after, you're watching apocalyptic. And, you know, Red Dawn obviously is is not quite apocalyptic, although they do mention some nuclear strikes. So, yeah, the mishmash of all of those, Boy and the Dog Should Give You Nightmares. That's a nightmarish book and uh, interesting start out for a guy who ends up in Miami Vice. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the intent is still there, which is I think animals don't have any idea what's happening around them, but they do know that they've got a, a master or in, this, in the case of the book, several masters or Acquaintances or pals or buddies—they know where their food comes from. You know, we've proven over time that animals understand affection tremendously. You know, possibly as much as we do in humans. And so, I think, you know, that partnership, that pair, was something I wanted to highlight. And that's not the last you're going to see of Trigger. Trigger is going to show up in several others. I'm in the middle of the other one right now, so, you know, I, I keep evoking images of the kill box, which is my next one. While you're asking me about this one, and so I'm trying to make sure I'm not mixing the two. But Trigger makes it through the first book, and and you'll see. You know, he'll show up in the second one as well.
0: Now, you also mentioned that civilians play a role in the resistance to the invasion, and we meet a civilian named Blue, and he talks more with his sniper rifle than he does with his words.
1: So, Blue is not just a mountain man, he's a bit of a Bible thumper. His mom obviously, as we introduce him, had a very solid hand in his upbringing. And as is the case, I think, in a lot of working class families is that, you know, dad is usually working a lot. So his influences over Blue are how do you shoot? How do you trap? How do you fish? How do you, you know, be a, be a man? But his mom is the one who named him, uh, named him after a mountain flower. So he goes instead of by Georgia Blue, he goes by Blue. And he is extremely well trained with a rifle. And he has his dad's rifle that he uses he demonstrates his shooting prowess over and over and over again and you know a lot of the cases in my military experience the kids who had training in the military only with weapons were good at what they did those who had you know not necessarily gun nuts but those guys who grew up in the mountains or anywhere that you go hunting a fair amount were eminently better at marksmanship because it was second nature to them. Having a rifle or a pistol, for that matter, on their side was, was kind of you know how they grew up. And so it was not difficult for them once they were did it in the military to care for the weapon, assemble it, disassemble it the right way, and then employ it with precision. And that's Blue.
0: Someone kind of made fun of his name during the course of the book, and I thought it was funny because my <laughs> yeah. girlfriend's mother changed her name to Blue back in the, yeah. the early 70s. So I've, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. well associated with that name.
1: Yeah. And and if you add the Georgia blue and you, and, you know, it's a flower, I don't think that's the last time he's gonna be teased about his name. He, and he's a, almost making it worse is he's a very big dude. You know, he's kind of a big lug in a little way. He's not, He's a little bit quieter than the rest of the guys. He has never thought strategically, he's never had to. And so when he's kind of among these more cosmopolitan folks, you know, he just holds his own by shooting his rifle and kind of making observations about things that really no one else is paying attention to. So he is a mountaineer. He's a mountain man.
0: Now, for much of the book, the only civil authority we really know is the mayor of Parsons, West Virginia, Susanna Holly, and yep. she's not one to back down when it comes to keeping her own town safe.
1: Not at all. So one of the things that distresses me as kind of a displaced Southerner, because I spent you know a, a good portion of my life in the South, and my family is all from the South, is that in movies and in books, if you want kind of a real jerky villain, you know, an uneducated, ill-disciplined you know, generally someone who not only is is uh, evil and conniving, but, you know, is all that in a poorly educated form, then they throw a Southerner in. So I, I've always hated, Hollywood tends to put Southerners in the worst light. And so, you know, in this case, we've got a very shrewd mayor, but she not only knows her stuff, but she is exceedingly manipulative. And she's very willing to be taken as the kind of country bumpkin mayor that everybody assumes her to be. But behind the scenes, she really has all of it going on. She knows exactly what's happening. And as we find out later in the book, I don't want to spoil that part of it, but as we find out later in the book, she has even more going on. And and even by the time you hit the end of the book, you are fairly sure she hasn't played all our cards at all. And you think, what else is going to happen? And in the second book that I'm writing right now, yeah, she's got a lot more cards to play. She's a very shrewd, very wise person. And she's happy to let the Southern facade, you know, kind of disarm her opponents.
0: A lot of the Russian military men that we meet during the course of this aren't long for this world. (laughs) <laughs> but one that will survive is Russian General Timkin.
1: So, General Timkin, if the antagonist is General Kolokov, who is, you know, in some ways the counterpart, at least tactically and operationally, to Tice, the strategic counterpart and the dark lord, if you will, behind things is General Timkin. And General Timkin's motivations are are not hundred percent clear in this book. You do know that he has a very good command of what's happening. He's been obviously in the service for a long time and his motivations are not just what kind of the Russian empire wants, but even kind of beyond that. But maybe even worse than that, he's very smart. He's a very crafty person. He understands people. He understands how to motivate people through you know kind of good ways and bad ways, whether it's promotions or pats on the back or whether it's a bullet to the head, he doesn't care. He really wants to get his job done and his job, you know, is not a hundred percent in keeping with what Russia wants. In some cases, it's about him.
0: Russia has been the aggressor in both of your novels to date. I have a feeling that you think Russia may not be the friends that some people want us to believe they are.
1: It's funny because even just in the past week or so of newspaper articles or online, whatever you read, there have been some very prominent articles about that. And one of them is the resurgence of World War II books, novels, and movies in Russia. In fact, the kind of Russian fantasy, I've got to be careful of how I say that because I really respect what Russia did during World War II, but there is a mythos to what happened in World War II, what the Russians were able to to accomplish. And they do put the U.S. and our allies on the sideline and say, no, Russia is what pacified the Germans. But there is this resurgence right now in, in Russian media for that era. And it's planned. I mean, as far as anybody can tell, who kind of get one deeper than what's, you know, their iTunes hit list for movies. It's that there is this resurgence, there is this thirst right now for movies, films, books from that era. And it's a resurgence in patriotism is really what it is. So. You know, where do their thoughts lie? Well, you can look at their grand strategies and and what they're doing on a daily basis and see aircraft that approach ours at speeds or at distances that are completely unsafe in locations that we don't want them, that are in our airspace. That's obviously Alaska and uh, Guam where we've seen those intrusions. Some of them we've seen through them or through some of their allies. The most frightening, I think, have been where they've bypassed China and come down to adjacent to South Korea and Japan with the Tupolev and other bombers and said, oh, we're here. And in all those instances, at least what's been in the public eye has been that they were unexpected and unnoticed until they arrived. Their submarines, very, very true to what we put in the, in the book, Red Metal, have been showing up near our undersea cables. What they're doing with them is anyone's guess. They've had a couple of snooping ships that have been down by Norfolk. These are you know, their version of kind of NSA or, or CIA ships that are collectors that have been outside our ports. And those are our most strategic military ports, the ones I write about in the book, or at least hearken to. And so whether it's air, land, or sea, well, I should mention, I didn't get into land, but I'll mention the land aspect of it, which is they have really honed their tactical nuclear weapon stock, meaning they've kind of not told the West about what they're doing, but they've been using them integrated in how they do land maneuvers. So we're starting to see them do practice operations and tactics integrated with tactical nuclear weapons again. They've reorganized their force, you know, even to the kind of flash aspect aspect of the with books and movies, you know, go down even one other layer and you see that they've provided new uniform designs. You know, when you've got militaries that are upgrading the uniforms to make their people look more flashy and get them more excited about service, you are certainly... Taking another step into, you know, what your expectations are for those forces is that you you want them to feel good about themselves, feel the pride. I mean, every military does, but they've had this kind of complete, I wouldn't say a 180, but they've had a very big strengthening of all of those aspects from social media all the way to what they do in, in the public eye with its uniforms. And their tactics and, and operations speak just as loudly.
0: So you can see these things kind of building toward public sentiment and uh, engagement with the military and their their history and the pride in military. Do you have any ideas toward their strategic aims with all this?
1: So to look at Russia's strategic aims, I think you look at the motions that they make. So you look at where they're trying to you know, reinforce gains on oil, where they're trying to reinforce gains on strategic minerals, where's their manufacturing emphasis? What are they buying for manufactured products? And if you look across those, they're increasing across all spheres. Russia certainly sees a gap in world leadership. I think, you know, at least in the past four or six years, they've seen a decline in American leadership globally, and they want to fill it. So if you were to ask Putin today you know, what does he see? I suspect he would probably say, I see that our star is ascending once again. I'm not going to balk at that opportunity. We will take every step it takes in order to ensure that we are no longer second at the world or third if you put China, you know, in the same sphere, but that is Russia and our allies, you know, need to take on a leadership position because America is losing its uh, leadership position in the world. So I, I think that, Across all those spheres, across all of its manufacturing, everything that it's doing, you know, Russia is thrusting itself back into prominence. I mean, you don't need to look further than election interference. You don't need to look further than what they're doing electronically, whether that's, you know, through the cyber uh, realms or, or kind of other means that they're intending to push their dominance into the world sphere again.
0: And in both of your novels, communications and the destruction of communications capability plays a major role in their aggressiveness.
1: I don't think that we realize how vulnerable our own communications are. I think for those of you and my generation, electronic means of communication are relatively new still. I mean, you look at them and say, well, you know, I don't have a landline phone. I just have the cell phone. But what happens if someone takes out the cell tower? Well, I'm dead in the water. And if I'm relying on that for internet banking all the way to ordering my next pizza. That's a big hit. Now think of that on a grand scale, we're not ordering pizza, we're ordering jets and fuel for our tanks and things like that. And, you know, communications meaning one general needs to talk to the next, flow across a lot of those same means. And so I don't know that we really realize how vulnerable we are. We have a tendency to believe that we have multiple redundancies, but we really don't. Those redundancies in some ways rely on kind of the primary means of communication. So, you know, whether you're in the Pentagon or whether you're stationed overseas, you are very vulnerable to the enemy's ability to take out our ability to communicate. In in Red Metal, you know, we posited a regional blackout of communications. I think a global blackout in some ways is a little bit more achievable because you can strike certain targets and now everybody can communicate locally, but globally you're completely blind.
0: You mentioned Red Metal. Writing of that book, you had a battle buddy, Mark Greeny. Now for Assault by Fire, you're a solo operator. What was it like writing on your own?
1: Well, it's exciting on the one hand. I mean, in some ways, you know, writing with Mark is just a sheer thrill because you know, he's not only an experienced writer, but he has a very good knack for kind of what turn of a phrase really turns people on. You know, and as a, a relatively junior author, I still conundrum over words that when we work together, I mean, he was very good about it. He would say, look at chapter 32 again, et cetera. And, and not having that, you know, able mentor, if you will, makes it exceedingly difficult because I'll bounce it off my mom and she has no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to tactics or, or strategy. So whereas, you know, Mark always had kind of a an, an innate knack on what sounded good on the page. So, you know, in a lot of ways for me, it's refreshing because I can go in a direction, you know, that's purely my own, but in a lot of ways, it's also a little distressing because I don't have a battle buddy that I can turn to and say, Hey, what do you think of this? That or the other thing.
0: So what does keep you focused that you don't have someone to be accountable to right now?
1: I mean, readers are the biggest. I mean, that was the same case with, with red metal as well. And it's the same case with my next book, The Killbox. I generally know what readers are looking for. So I think, as an avid reader myself, if I read my own writing and it doesn't sound right or it's too in the weeds, you know, I can kind of self edit now. I, I'm not sure that I would have been able to do that before red metal, but now it's I can look at something. I mean, as I mentioned previously in the interview, there are whole chapters that I just slaughtered and it was a tearful slaughter. <laughs> I mean, I machine gunned some chapters down that were. Very in-depth and very, obviously, in my mind, were well-written chapters, but uh, that just got too deep into background. And I think armchair generals would have really enjoyed them, and certainly there will be tidbits of those in the future. But, you know, your average reader really doesn't want to – I don't want to read some of those. When I read through them, you know, it took me 20 or 30 times, but by the time I got back through, I thought, geez, this is just – Now I'm detailing things that, you know, no one besides someone who's a career military person would really be interested in. So I think that self-editing is something that all authors, you know, perhaps after one or two or three books are really good at. And hopefully, you know, I was able to cut my teeth on red metal and and, uh, now I'm doing better on it uh, with Assault by Fire.
0: In Assault by Fire, I mean, you have just the barest little background for Asher and Kolokov. But other than that, you're right into the action and it keeps going forward.
1: Yeah, to me, the action is what propels all of it. I mean, you want to see the guys and their reactions, and you want to know how good are they. I mean, it's it's almost akin to what we experience in the military where you have some new guys. I mean, we call them boots. A boot is a guy who's got brand-new polished boots, and we don't polish our boots in the Marine Corps anymore. But back in the day, you had to polish your boots, so a boot was the kid who came in and had kind of an over luster. I mean, all of us had to polish him. But the kid who's, you know, got glass boots, the polish is so good it looks like glass. We're called boots. And so a boot could be a, an officer, a lieutenant, or it could be a brand new enlisted man. It doesn't matter. Boot is a generic term for someone who's just brand new. I mean, it could even be someone who's new in the in the unit. So you could be a lieutenant colonel coming into a you know the Pentagon among other lieutenant colonels, and you're the boot lieutenant colonel. Never hold that vaulted rank. But for generals, it's the same thing, I imagine, is that if you're the boot general, you show up and you're the new guy. So you know, I think capturing in the book through the eyes of the people who are brand new to the action, we want to see how they're going to do. And just like anybody in the military wants to see how the new guy is going to perform, the reader, in some ways, is in that omniscient position, and he wants to see. Okay, you know, Rip Rawlings, you have introduced me to this guy. I kind of care about him. He got blown out of a and He lost his leg. So, let's see what he can do. And then when he's thrust in the action you know, how is he going to perform and the same thing with the other characters as well. So I think for the readers, that's the most enticing is, you know, show me, show me what this guy can do and let me care about him.
0: So would you think in the terms of being an author, are you Now up to first lieutenant or are you an NCO?
1: Well, so an NCO would outrank a lieutenant in a lot of people's minds (laughs) because an NCO has been around the block and he's the guy digging the fighting holes. You know, hopefully I'm embodying all of those a little bit right now. I am the most critical of my writing. And so when I read something, you know, I'll go through it six, seven, eight, nine times. And I don't think that's a very efficient way to write. So maybe I'm still very junior in, in how I'm putting things together, is that I get very stuck on how things sound on the page, how they'll sound in someone's mind, and what image they'll present in someone's mind. I mean, all of us read in order to evoke the words off the page and to envision in our own minds what's happening. And we all know a good book versus a bad book, or or a mediocre, or an okay is that, you know, the images, if you feel them, touch them, smell them in your own brain, and you can see the person doing them, then you've stumbled on a good author. And so I think I'm the most critical of myself on those parts of the book. But I think I still have a lot to learn. I think hopefully I'm engaging readers. They're excited. And I hope that they'll come back for more. (laughs) But I hope I can just get better and better from there.
0: Well, Rip, it sure has been a pleasure speaking with you again. Thanks for meeting us up on the internet and talking about Assault by Fire. It's been a, a real pleasure.
1: Hey, it's, it's always a pleasure. I mean, as I was with our previous interview for Red Metal, you are an engaging and, and authoritative uh, interviewer. So it's, it's always a pleasure on my end as well.
0: I have fooled you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that.
0: <laughs> Rip, I think we're having too much fun. I think we can go for another episode. <laughs> would you like to stick around and record another one?
1: I would love to. I, I really enjoy speaking with you about this stuff. It's a lot of fun.
0: So listeners, come back next time for Rip Rawlings and Assault by Fire. Hey, Rip, thank you so much for hanging around and speaking to us for another episode of Book Talk on Assault by Fire.
1: Complete pleasure on my end. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: H. Ripley Rawlings IV is the author of Assault by Fire, which is published by Pinnacle Books. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions
1: or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com
0: or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of BookTalk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.